are uh, focusing on um, pornography. And um, I'm really excited to introduce to you guys Father Kilcoli. Um, he was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Lincoln in 2005, that's in Nebraska. Before entering seminary, he graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 96 and served for three years active duty as an infantry officer in the United States Army. From 2009 to 2013, Father studied at the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Rome, earning a license of sacred theology, summa cum laude, and has com completed training in sex addiction treatment from the SATP Institute and the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction, addiction, addiction Professionals. He currently serves the Diocese of Lincoln as the director of the Office of Family Life. Um, and for the past three years, Father has been educating parents, running support groups for addicts and their spouses, educating clergy, speaking at conferences on the best practices and resources for addressing <coughs> pornography at the parish and the diocesan level. His speaking engagements have included Mount 2000 Youth Conference, the Coalition to End Sexual Exploitation, the Global Set Free Summit, the National Safe Environment Child Protection Conference, and the International Theology of the Body Congress. And tonight he'll be addressing us on what it is going to take, what's going, what it's going to take to recover masculinity in our pornified world. So join me in welcoming Father Kipali. Thanks. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ, that every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you, and through you be happily completed through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, it's a great joy to be with you all tonight. As Tim said, my name is Father Sean Kilcally, and, uh, and I'm the Family Life Office Director in the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, for about five, the last five or six years, I've been really more intentionally addressing this problem of pornography, which really started out as me just trying to get parents to filter their internet. Like, that was it. And, and I started giving a few talks to parents, and then all of a sudden, all these couples started coming in to see me. And then I started needing to get more education for myself. Um, and then I made a partnership with Kevin and I's and one of their vice presidents just started recommending me as a speaker. And right now I spend about half of my time on the road, uh, mostly doing conferences for other priests. And, and that's really the joy in my life is giving conferences to other priests because um, if you can help a priest, you can help a thousand people. And, and so I do a lot of diocesan trainings and, and things like that. Um, so tonight's talk really is, is going to be about masculine identity first. Because um, Tim asked me about this, like, how do you recover masculine identity in the midst of a pornified world? And, and I think there's a lot of confusion about what my masculine identity is and how it's passed on and how it's bestowed. Um, and so I'm going to talk about that and a little bit more about how particularly the problem of pornography corrupts that. And, and then I want to I finish with just giving you some concrete tools so that like, if you have a friend or something like that that might need help, like what are some ways of breaking free? 
um, right? Because the average age of pornography exposure right now in our country is between 8 and 11 years old, right? Between 8 and 11 is average, and that's average for your age group. And, uh, and if that's true, then that means like a lot of people are carrying this problem, and nobody's really exempt from it. You know, nobody's exempt from it. That's another really exciting thing about doing the work that I'm doing is I have spoken at almost every single conference possible. Like I spoke at the mega evangelical Protestant conference in Canada, and I just got done speaking to the Society of St. Pius X in Kansas City. I'm pretty sure I'm the only speaker who's done those two audiences. <laughs> and there's a lot of joy in that, right? There's a lot of joy in that. And really, what does that mean? That means that this is just a problem in the church, right? It's just a problem in the church. And, uh, and so, again, we're going to talk about masculine identity in terms of love, marriage, and family life. So I'll tell you about kind of my own family, because that's where we receive our identity. Uh, my father grew up in Ireland, and when he was about 19, he fell in love and got married, had two daughters and a son. My sister Donna was born in England and then raised by her Italian grandmother in Ireland. And now she's married to an Italian who runs an Irish pub in Rome, which is pretty great. My sister Jacqueline was born in Ireland. And then my brother Mark was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So dad moved to the United States when he was 22. Mark was born about two years later. My father abandoned that family, uh, never had relationships with any of those children, moved around the country and ended up in Michigan. So meanwhile, my mother grew up in Michigan. When she was in high school, she fell in love and got married, had two sons, my brothers James and John. And when John was about four years old, they also got divorced. So dad made it to Michigan, met my mom. Yes, I was born. And then about two weeks short of my second birthday, my mother died of cervical cancer. So within about a year, my father married my stepmother, and they had two daughters and a son, my sister Sarah, my sister Katie, and my brother Kevin. And when I was a sophomore in college, they also got divorced. Right? So that's how I became the Family Life Office director for my diocese. Right? That joke works with adults, right? <laughs> with like old people. <laughs> but that's the family that I grew up in. It's the family our Lord called me out of, and it's the family that I learned to pray in. And I would pray Psalm 139 before I knew about Psalm 139, which says, Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. I praise you for I'm wonderfully made because I would marvel at the fact that God had took my dad across an ocean through all these circumstances to get him to my mom and put their DNA together and make me just in time before my mom died. And so if our Lord went through all that trouble to make me, he must have had a reason. And I started asking him that reason. I was about seven years old when I first thought of being a priest. And my motivation for that was that I just really wanted to meet my mother. <clears throat> I always knew that I had a mother who was in heaven. And I really wanted to know what would it be like to be in her presence, to sit next to her. I would wonder, like, I wonder if Sarah feels different sitting next to mom than I feel sitting next to mom. Like, she must feel different because she grew inside of her body for nine months. And I just really wanted to know what that was like, and so I made up this syllogism, kind of like this. I really want to meet my mom, and my mom's in heaven. Therefore, I have to get to heaven. Ugh, so I guess I'll become a priest, because all priests go to heaven. Right? <laughs> it's kind of how we think when we're kids. In high school, I got really involved in youth ministry and felt our Lord calling me to be a priest. And then after high school, I went to the military academy at West Point, studied Arabic and Middle Eastern studies, graduated in 1996, went to Fort Benning, Georgia, learned how to jump out of planes, became an Army Ranger, 
With Fort Campbell, Kentucky, I had the top three lieutenant jobs you can have as an infantry lieutenant, so my career was soaring and my heart was broken. Because at that time in my life, I felt like God wants me to be a priest, but I'm stuck in this military service obligation. So there's nothing I can do about that, and in my immaturity at the time, I kind of resolved that tension by keeping God as far away as possible. Right, the easiest way to do that is to stay stuck in sin. Most expedient way to do that is to stay stuck in sexual sin. Because Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And he means it. <clears throat> right, and he means it now. And so therefore, the impure of heart cannot see God. And so pornography became my normal coping mechanism through college. Kind of escalated to a lot of running towards bars and women in Nashville when I was in the army. And then at a certain point, I was dating this girl. She had a one-year-old child. She was separated, not yet divorced. And she asked me to move in with her. And I remember that day she asked me to move in with her and just feeling my heart sink into my stomach, feeling like I was going to be sick, looking at myself in the mirror and saying, who are you? Like, what happened to you? And I went on this long drive to go see my brother in Florida. And I was driving back, and I'm crying out to our Lord from my heart, like, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And I heard him say pretty distinctly, I want you to be a priest, stupid. <laughs> like, I've always wanted you to be a priest. And so I went to the Marian Shrine where at the church I attended, prayed the rosary, said, I'm going to ask one more time about going to the seminary. If the door opens, it opens. If it doesn't open, I'm done asking. Two days later, my chaplain walks by my office. Chaplain, do you know any way I could get out of the army early, go to the seminary? Maybe in 10 years, I'll come back in as a chaplain. Oh, yeah, the priest recruiter is going to be here on Friday. Just happened to be that week. I meet with him. He says, here's all the paperwork you need to fill out. I've helped two other West Pointers in the last two years. Ugh. Now I have to do this. So I start filling out this paperwork, and then another friend comes by, and he introduces me to this person called the spiritual director. And so I start meeting with this priest for direction, and, and he was kind of an authoritarian priest, um, sort of. He had like this high and tight haircut and spoke in this deep voice, kind of projecting what he thinks masculinity is supposed to look like. And, and I remember him talking to me and he's like, Sean, what does God want you to do? Uh, I think he wants me to be a priest. Good. So do I. That means he does. <laughs> what? And then he asks me where, and he goes, where do you want to be a priest? I don't know. I'll probably go home to Michigan. That's where I grew up. He just looks at me. He's like, Michigan. I don't know Michigan. Lincoln, you should go to Lincoln. Thinking in my head, like, you should go to hell. <laughs> Why would I want to go to Lincoln, Nebraska? It's like a cornfield and there's a football stadium somewhere. So I went to Lincoln just to appease this spiritual director, and it just turned out to feel like home. And um, so I entered the seminary in 2005, was ordained in 2000, or entered the seminary in 99, was ordained in 2005, uh, spent four years teaching high school. And then 2008, I went to Bishop Bruskowitz to ask him to go back in the Army. And he counteroffered with graduate school. So he sort of said, you can do whatever you want. I think you should go to graduate school. He made a promise of obedience. Um, so I went to the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family Studies in Rome in 2009. And studying there definitively changed my life and saved my priesthood. And I'll kind of tell that story as we go through tonight. Uh, in 2013, I came home and I started by writing a chastity curriculum. Because in our diocese, our curriculum was that we taught Humanae Vitae to ninth graders. And so we have this one-week unit. So we, we've, we're teaching on basically an apologetic against contraception to a bunch of kids who don't even know what a relationship is yet. 
So I switched our curriculum and started teaching out of the anthropology from the institute. And I thought I was going to change the world because we all think like whatever we studied in school is going to change the world. And then I sat in the confessional for a couple months and realized my curriculum's not going to work. Right? Because between 2009 and 2013, the whole world shifted. In 2009, the biggest distraction in my classroom was kids texting during class. Like they could put their hand in their pocket, feel the buttons on their phone, send a message without looking. Father, I don't have my phone out. That's the rule. No phones out. 2013, they can't do that anymore. But all their phones have screens, and all the screens are high speed, high definition, delivery systems for everything. And so I was faced with this question of how do I teach the truth, beauty, and goodness of God's plan to a generation that's consuming the anti-message? Right? To a generation that's consuming the anti-message. And so I pivoted and I started doing those parent talks, and those parent talks led to needing to form recovery groups and, and young people and college students and seminarians coming to me looking for help. And, um, and then that led to me being at Christendom. Okay. So one point that Pope Benedict made when he was talking about family life, he said this. He said, the new evangelization depends largely on the domestic church. In our time as in times past, the eclipse of God, the spread of ideologies contrary to the family, and the degradation of sexual ethics are connected. Okay, so these three things, the eclipse of God, the spread of ideologies contrary to the family, and the degradation of sexual ethics. And so we know that we live in a world where there's the degradation of sexual ethics. Average age of exposure to pornography is between 8 and 11. Pornography is the cause of divorce in one out of four cases of divorce. Sexting is the new dating for a lot of young people today. Young people are more likely to go on Tinder and hook up than to ask somebody to go on a date. We know there's the degradation of sexual ethics. We also have the spread of ideologies contrary to the family and our culture. And so we should expect that there's an eclipse of God. We should expect that we just can't see God anymore because Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God. And sometimes people will, will ask me questions, like even like faithful people. And I remember being at a youth conference once, and, and this young man came up to me, and he was talking to me, and he was like, Father, why don't I ever feel anything at adoration? There's two things I could do with that question, right? I can go, feelings are bad. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right? There's a temptation to do that, but there's probably something to explore there, too. And, and I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, everybody, like, they talk about having this profound experience of Jesus, and I've just never had that before. And then I asked him, well, so are, what, what kind of things might be in the way of your relationship with Jesus? And he said, well, I do that one thing that you talk about. <clears throat> well, how often is that? Uh, like every day. So if you are struggling with pornography and masturbation every day, if you're struggling with pornography and masturbation anything less than once every three months, one of the side effects of that is that it like shuts down your emotional life. And your emotions go from like numb to frustrated all the time. And I was like, you spend most of your time numbing, you can't feel anything. Right? It's not Jesus, it's that you can't feel anything. And so this thing like, oh, I, I don't know, I can't experience God, but it's a, it's a very tangible thing. It's a very tangible thing. Now, the opposite is also true, which is the good news. That the, once there is purity of heart, we start to see God. There was a guy who came and saw me, and he had gotten fired from his job. And, uh, and so I'm talking to him. 
And I usually ask all my directees, you know, do you have any addictions in your family, like alcoholism, anything like that, any history of abuse? And, you know, what was your relationship like with your parents growing up, things like that? And he was like, oh, no, like, that was all fine. Like, I don't have any addictions. My dad was an alcoholic. My sister was a drug addict, but I don't do any of that stuff. Pornography or masturbation? No, no, I just don't get people. Like, I don't really get people's feelings, and I have a hard time seeing things from the other person's point of view, and sometimes I hurt people's feelings without even realizing it. And I'm kind of all about the mission. Huh. Well, I don't know much, but I work with a lot of people who have sexual addictions. And one of the side effects of that is your emotional life goes from numb to frustrated all the time. And you have trouble, a hard time seeing things from other people's point of view or understanding other people's feelings. You might even hurt their feelings without even realizing it. Really? Well, maybe I do that sometimes. Uh, how often? Uh, every day. So I grab this book off the shelf called Treating Pornography Addiction. I give him a copy of this book. I give him the name of a therapist. And I said, let's do an experiment and get that out of your life for a while and see what happens. So he comes back two months later. He's been clean for two months. Father, thanks so much for the name of that therapist. Things are going really well there. My wife's going to start coming to therapy with me. And I've been meeting with my priest. And I've been learning how to pray. But the weirdest thing is I was in the truck with my son the other day. And we were just driving down the street. And he kind of looked over at me randomly and said, I like the new dad. I like the new dad. And he was like, what? Well, I like the old dad. I just really like the new dad. And what happened? Like his emotional life came back online. He was more affectively present to his son. He was more free to enter into his son's world. And his son was able to experience the love of God through the love of his earthly father. All right, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. And because our goal is really to love well and to love greatly. <clears throat> in Redemptor Hominis, John Paul II says, Man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. Right? We're created for love and connection. This is the deepest longing of our heart. The deepest longing of our heart is to belong to another. It's to belong to another. And if it's true that we're created for love and connection, then the devil has a plan for love, and he has a plan for our families. He has a plan for your community on campus. He has a plan for our church. And his plan is the same plan that Jesus reveals in Luke's gospel when he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you all like wheat. Right, to sift you all like we, to take what's connected and divide it, to take what's in communion and scatter it. Now we sort of imagine a family and they're sitting around a table and they're playing cards or something like that and they're telling stories and they're sharing their lives and then this big sifter comes under the table and the double starts cranking on the sifter and everybody comes out the bottom staring at their iPhones. So that's what families look like sometimes. It's what lunch with my brother priest looks like sometimes. 2007, I was the first one of my friends to get a smartphone. I was super excited. It was a Windows smartphone, did email. That's it. It was amazing. And I'm like, I'm going to be so productive. I can check my email wherever I am. So I go out to dinner with my friends, and halfway through dinner, I'm looking at my email. And my friend looks over at me, and he was just like, Kukali, put your phone away. What's your problem? Like, we're right here. There's a really good sale at Amazon. Like, scrolling through nothing. Five years later, I'm out with the same group of guys halfway through the meal. We're all scrolling through nothing. And we're not connecting. You know, and we're not connecting. And then multiply that by 500 times when what you're scrolling through is pornography. 
know, and this inability to connect. And so, so when we look at our story, <clears throat> right, because if we're talking about masculine identity, we're talking about a story, right? And coming into our masculine identity is about coming into a story. And the story of salvation is the model story for all of us, right? It's the model story for all of us. The story of salvation is a story of healing and recovery. It's the story of conversion. We can tell it really quickly, like God created the world and everything was good. Then something happened called original sin and things become distorted, right? Distortion means you can still tell what it is. It's just not clear anymore. So the family, when things were good, was like a mom, dad, and their natural children. And the family in distortion is the family of Israel, right? The family of Israel is the family of Jacob. Jacob fell in love with Rachel, wanted to marry her. Then he got tricked into marrying her uglier older sister, Leah. Right, had to wait seven more years to marry the woman he loves, finally marries her, but she can't have children, so she says, take my concubine and have children with her, and he does. And then Leah says, well, take my concubine and have children with her, and he does. And then finally, Rachel has children. And so the family in distortion is like one dad, four moms, 12 brothers, who all hate each other and sell Joseph to the Egyptians. It's just like the Kilkali family. Right? It's like a lot of families. And then what happens, Jesus enters into that family. Right? Our Lord enters into this distorted family of Israel. He doesn't just enter into the holy family of Nazareth where everything is perfect. Matthew chapter 1, every year Christmas Eve, we hear the gospel. Abraham was the father of Isaac, was the father of Jacob. And we hear people's names like Tamar. Tamar had two husbands die, was waiting on the third brother to come marry her. He never showed up. She hears her father-in-law's come to town. She dresses like a prostitute, goes and seduces her father-in-law, gets pregnant by him, and then shows up with a baby and says, now you have to let me back into your home. Not the holy family of Nazareth. Rahab, prostitute. Ruth, not a member of the people of God. Bathsheba, we don't even mention her name. We say the wife of Uriah because we're so ashamed of what David did with her. And when we have all of those stories in our head and we have all that kind of junk in our head, then we hear these words, then was born Jesus. Right? Then was born Jesus. What does that mean? That means if Jesus can be born into that family, he can be born into my family. Or if Jesus can be born into that mess, he can be born into my mess. So that he can bring clarity and we can grow in virtue and then comes the end of our lives and we enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's our story. It's also my autobiography and yours. I was born into a world where everything was good. Then something happened. My mom died when I was two. My dad was an alcoholic and he was kind of distant in the household when I was growing up. When I was 11, I saw pornography magazines for the first time at a friend's house with an irresponsible dad. When I was 14, I went to my half-brother's house on a rite of passage weekend, and I like, drove a car and drank alcohol and watched a pornography video for the first time in my life. When I was in high school, I had weak masculine identity, and the upperclassmen spread rumors about me that I was gay. All those things are things that happened. And they caused the distortion about how I understood myself, how I understood God, how I understood relationships between men and women. But then something else happened. Jesus entered into my life to reveal to me who I am, to heal what was wounded, to supply what I didn't receive, to make me a new creation in him so that I can grow in clarity and virtue and hopefully someday get to heaven. Right? That's the story of all of our lives. It's the story of all of our lives. You know, that's how we give a testimony. We just tell that story. When St. Paul is questioned about his authority, what does he do? He just tells that story. I was the worst persecutor of Christians. People were piling up close at my feet when they were stoning Stephen. And then he who knit me together in my mother's womb saw fit to enter into my life and it changed everything and I was blinded. And then the very person I was going to persecute and haul off into jail opened my eyes for me. And I was baptized and now I can't help but to preach the gospel. 
right? That's our story. And part of growing into our identity is like, how do I tell this story? Right? How do you tell that story in your own head? You know, I was born into a world where everything was good. Then I went to the seminary. I'm going to skip that distortion part. <laughs> Came out of the womb swinging a thurible. <laughs> right? Sometimes, sometimes we want to do that. But if we're interested in evangelizing and evangelizing the culture, that part of our story becomes really important because that part of your story is an on-ramp for people. It's an on-ramp for people. It's saying, I was once where you are, but now I'm here, so I know the path. Right? And every testimony that's ever given has to do with, I was in darkness, and now I'm in lights. I was a sinner, and now I'm a saint. I was lost, and I was found. One time I asked a focused missionary, tell me your testimony. He was like, I grew up in a Catholic family where I wasn't well, really well catechized. I went to college and read a Peter Kreef book, and now I'm virtuous. It's like, did Jesus show up somewhere? <laughs> no, did Jesus show up anywhere? So our story is about falling in love with a person. And so <clears throat> when we talk about being created in the image of God, which is where identity, our dignity comes from, Pope Benedict talks about three movements of love in the Trinity. And these three movements of love are really important, especially when we're dealing with sexual sin and how to be free. So the first movement of love in God is fatherhood. Fatherhood is active love. It's self-giving love. It's the love that says your needs are more important than my needs. It's love, the love that gets moms out of bed in the middle of the night to take care of their crying babies. Yeah. Or dads out of bed in the middle of the night to pick up their kid from jail or something. It's <laughs> sacrificial love. The words we put on that are, I want the good for you, right? To will the good of the other. I'm sure you all have learned that somewhere, right? To will the good of the other. Like, I want your good. But that's the first movement, okay? It's only one movement. Thomas Aquinas says the persons of the Trinity are distinct by their relation, and the distinction is an absolute distinction. So when I describe sonship, the love of the Son for the Father, I have to use different words, and so to be a son is the response to the father, right? It's the response to the father. So if I know somebody wants the good for me, if I know they love me, if I know they're willing to lay down their life for me, what do I do with that? Right? What do I do with that? And the words that I'm going to put on this are from Lumen Fide, where the act of faith is described as entrusting oneself to a merciful love that always accepts and pardons and makes straight the crooked lines of our history. So if I know somebody loves me, I know I can entrust myself to them. And entrusting myself to, me, to them means I give myself to them, but I give myself into their hands, or I give myself into their care. Right? I place my heart in their hands. I could turn off my brain and let them make all my decisions for the rest of the day. And I'm confident that at the end of the day, my life's going to be better than it was at the beginning. Hey, how many people can we say that about? And can we really say that about our Lord? Because if I'm honest, that is the hardest way to love somebody, to entrust our life to another person. It's much harder than wanting somebody's good. It's harder to be loved than to love. And when I was in graduate school, it was the second time in my life I was sitting in a classroom while all my classmates from West Point were fighting a war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I'm sitting in class and I'm learning about love and marriage and family and fatherhood and motherhood and sonship and daughterhood and joy. And I have this professor who's always talking about joy, but he's Spanish speaking Italian, so it's la joya. And he says it like that, right? Like the dynamism of falling in love. A young man sees a beautiful woman who makes an impression on his heart, which leads to a desire. The desire moves him towards the woman. And when he has union with the woman, he has la joya. 
And I'm sitting in my chair going, I don't have la joya. I don't even know if I've had a feeling in the last five years. And the idea of the church's teaching is crashing into the, my experience and my experiences of love. And I would go home and I got really depressed. And, uh, and as soon as I went to bed at night, I started fantasizing. And I was fantasizing about what if I had a time machine and I could go back and I could be an army chaplain instead of being here and I'd be saying mass on the battlefield and I'd be running into my old classmates and giving last rites and single-handedly stopping faction wars. And that fantasy started to drift. Like, what if I never became a priest? I'd be a battalion commander with 670 men under my command. What if I married my high school girlfriend? I'd have kids who were 15 by now, started naming them. And the more that I stayed in that kind of fantasy, the more it revealed the fact that I hadn't entrusted myself completely to Jesus or my bishop. And one day I was out jogging by St. Peter's and I was looking up at St. Peter's and I said out loud for the first time in my entire life, I want to be a priest. I was already a priest for seven years, but I'd never said the words, I want to be a priest. When I was a kid, I used to say, I think God wants me to be a priest. It's kind of more passive, kind of like, isn't it tragic? It's like the greatest vocation in the world, isn't it tragic? Then in the seminary, my spiritual director would say, Sean, what do you want to do? I want to do whatever God wants me to do. Oh, get her so holy. But I wasn't really holy. I was sort of leaving space for a holy loophole. Because if I'm only willing to say I want to do whatever God wants, it leaves room for me to be wrong. Then five years down the road, I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I was so immature. And that one priest kind of bullied me into going to the seminary. I'm not really supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be there. I wasn't supposed to be a priest. I was supposed to marry my high school girlfriend. Then I start Facebook stalking her. That happens to a lot of guys. It's happened to a lot of priests I know. And it happens to a lot of married people that I know. Entrusting myself to you means I desire the thing that you desire for me. I desire the thing that you desire for me. Jesus, what do you want me to do? I want you to be a priest, stupid. Okay, I want to be a priest. Every single day, I want to be a priest. When you get married someday, every single day, I want to be a husband. Every single day, I want to be a father. Every single day, I want to be a Catholic Christian. What would your life be like if you lived every single day like you want to be a Catholic Christian? Every single day, I want to be a student at Christendom College. I'm sure nobody goes back to your room at night and is like, oh, I wish I was at Virginia Tech right now. If I was there, I'd have all these babes. <laughs> you know, surely that never... Like, nobody's ever thought that. Right? These are all the kinds of fantasies that enter into our life. Right? When we talk about lust, it's not just sexual fantasy. It's not just sexual fantasy. It's in the Sexaholics Anonymous white book, it says this, Lust is not sex. Lust is a screen of self-indulgent fantasy that separates me from my reality. Right? A screen of self-indulgent fantasy that separates me from my reality. To include the reality of myself. Right? And that's the weakness when we talk about like weaknesses in men. Like our weakness is this screen of self-indulgent fantasy that separates us from our reality. And that can be any kind of fantasy. It could be fantasy about what if I could save the world? 
right? My favorite fantasy is like, what if I was the bishop? <laughs> I would do everything differently. <laughs> I mean, we all can have those kinds of things, right? So to entrust myself, the Holy Spirit is the bond of love or the fruitfulness of the love between them. So in an article called Truth and Freedom, Joseph Ratzinger said, the real God is by his very nature entirely being for the Father, being from the Son, and being with the Holy Spirit. He says, man for his part is God's image precisely insofar as the from, with, and for constitute the fundamental anthropological pattern. So there's a pattern of love in our lives that starts with being from another, which is most foundational, being a son who entrusts ourselves completely to our parent. Then we learn to be with another in friendships and sibling relationships. Eventually, one of those friendships becomes a marriage, and when they have children, as a mother and a father, they can be for their children. And the pattern matters. He goes on to say, whenever we attempt to free ourselves from the pattern, we're not on our way to divinity, but to dehumanization, to the destruction of being itself, through the destruction of the truth. So how might we free ourselves from the pattern? If my ministry is more important to me than my prayer life, I'm freeing myself from the pattern. If I care more about people saying good homily, Father, than whether or not I received it from our Lord, I'm freeing myself from the pattern. If I find my identity in what I do, what I accomplish, my grades, my successes, rather than where I'm from, it's freeing myself from the pattern. In the modern world, when people find their identity and who they're attracted to, who they're aroused by, or who's attracted to them, instead of where they're from, it's freeing ourselves from the pattern because identity is always our being from relation. Right? Our identity is always where we're from. How do we know that? Because Jesus reveals to us who we are, and Jesus' identity is Son of God. His identity is not Savior of the world. His identity is not Bridegroom of the Church. His identity is Son of God. Mark 1.1, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At the baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, this is my chosen Son. Listen to him. At the end of Mark's Gospel, truly this was the Son of God. Right? The point of the Gospels is to tell us who Jesus is, and Jesus is the Son of God. And it's important for us to like, let that penetrate our hearts because that means my identity is who I entrust myself to. I find my identity in who I entrust myself to. And we live in a world where there's a lot of like faux masculinity. And when I say faux masculinity, that's people who think you can achieve masculinity. And they think that to be a man, you have to do a lot of things over here in the being for category. We're going to have a man night, so what are we going to do? We're all going to not shave in November, and we're going to eat meat and drink beer and smoke pipes and read Chesterton. That's what we're going to do, and that will make us men. right? And there's all these things I can do in order to become, like we be, masculinity is received, it's not achieved. Okay, it's received, it's not achieved. Like masculinity is received when we're accepted by a group of men that we admire. Right, when we're accepted by a group of men that we admire. So when people talk about like rites of passage in certain cultures, like the things they did aren't as important as being accepted by the community afterwards. And in my own experience, like that, I, I can pinpoint the time when that happened in my life. And I was about 23. So, so I, I had weak masculine identity in high school. 
um, for lots of reasons. And, uh, and then I went to West Point. So I was one of those guys in high school where I had more friends that were girls than guys. And I didn't play team sports. And I was a swimmer and a cross country runner. And my identity was mostly found in my being with relations. Like as long as girls liked me, I was good. That's who I was. And then I decided to go to a university where it's 90% men and 10% women, which wasn't easy for me. And, and so I went through four years at West Point, and at the end, I branched infantry because that's the hardest thing I can think of to do. Right? And I'm, I'm trying to figure out like where's my limits. And it's good for us to figure out where's our limits. So I branched infantry, and we had infantry barbecue night. So infantry barbecue night is branch night when we get our branch insignias, which are cross rifle pins that we wear on our uniform. And then we have this big party. And there were 18 kegs of beer, two sides of beef, nine roasted pigs, and we just ate meat and drank beer and said hua a lot. And we got our cross rifle pins, but we didn't pin them on our shirts. We just didn't wear shirts, and we just jammed them into our chest. And we're all running around with cross rifle pins in our chest, with blood streaking down, saying hua, and uh, eating meat and drinking beer. None of that made me a man. Right? None of that made me a man. I was in ranger school, and I got to the third phase of ranger school, and half of the class had fallen out at that point, and I was, my muscles had atrophied down to about 145 pounds of me. And so every time you're walking around, you're smelling sulfur because your body's burning muscle instead of fat now. And I could barely carry the M60 machine gun anymore, but I'm still in the class. I didn't fall out yet. And I'm thinking to myself, nobody's going to want to be my ranger buddy. I'm like the weakest dude in this class. Nobody's going to want me to be my ranger, their ranger buddy. And then Dave Parks, who's now a colonel, way stronger than me, way faster than me, better, better officer than me, walks up to me and he's like, hey, Kilcally, be my ranger buddy. And in that moment, and from that moment forward, I never doubted who I was again. Like, I never doubted, I never felt like I wasn't good enough, I never felt like insecure, I never wondered like where my identity falls. It's from this one guy who I really admired who chose me, right, who chose me. And, and that's this dynamic of being accepted by a group of men that I admired. You know, and that's where masculinity is bestowed. But how can that be bestowed if we live in a society where we've been sifted all like wheat? Like, it's really hard for that to happen. Because I can't find anybody I admire to accept me. You know, that's why it's really important to choose good mentors, right? So it's important for like when you're an upperclassman to like, like accept younger underclassmen. Those are things that happen on sports teams a lot. But they're supposed to happen for everybody. And they were all supposed to have happened with our fathers. They were all supposed to have happened with our fathers. But oftentimes that doesn't happen with our fathers. And so masculinity is received, not achieved, right? It's about this relation. And when we look at Genesis chapter 2, there's this unfolding of that anthropological order. And so God creates Adam first, right? In Genesis 2, God creates Adam first, puts Adam in the garden, says, don't eat that fruit or you're going to die. Adam believes God, he trusts God, he entrusts himself to God, and everything's good, right? So in the beginning... Adam's just alone in the garden. He experiences himself as a son. God wants the good for him because he doesn't want him to die. He believes God. He trusts God. He entrusts himself to God, and everything's good. But he can't yet be a husband or a father, so he can only be a son. So the Lord says, it's not good for you to be alone. I'll make you a suitable helpmate. 
And then he brings them all the animals, so that was really confusing. Right, everything about that is how the narrative goes. I will make you a suitable helpmate. And Adam's like wandering around, and you know, he knows I'm not like the rock, I'm not like the tree. Then he sees this creature, and he's like, maybe this is the creature. And then this creature runs up, starts licking his face. He's like, nah, it's just a dog. Right? And he has to go through this whole thing. Like, that's how the narrative goes. And then finally, it casts a deep sleep on him. When he wakes from that sleep, he sees this creature, and her body's like his body, but not like his body. And when he looks into her eyes, he can see that she knows the same God that he knows, that she's a daughter of the same father. And he cries out, at last, this is the creature, right? At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so now he can love her with the way, the way that God loves him. God wants the good for him. He wants the good for her. He also entrusts himself to her. She's entrusted herself to the Lord. She entrusts herself to him. She also wants the good for him. And when that happens in the most complete, profound, and bodily way in the marital embrace, a third person comes forth. So now he can be a son, a husband, and a father. She can be a daughter, wife, and a mother, and everything's good. But then something happens. So when love is corrupted, it's corrupted according to the pattern. Okay, and this is really important. It's corrupted according to the pattern. So what happens first is there's this first temptation in the garden. If you eat that fruit, you will not die. You'll be like God. So the first temptation is the same one we all experience, which is to doubt the fact that God wants the good for me. Right? Every time we fall into sin, we fall into sin because we don't believe God loves us. Right? Even the smaller sins, like when I go back to my room at the end of the day and I've had a really long day and I'm carrying around everybody's trauma because I've been doing pastoral counseling for nine hours and I don't want to talk to anybody, so I go to my room and I shut the door and I pretend like nobody knows I'm home and I'm like, it's Father Sean time. I'm going to watch Netflix. If I go to Netflix instead of Jesus in that moment, that just means I think Netflix is more trustworthy than Jesus to take care of me. It's not the worst sin in the world, but that's the truth. And there was this moment in which I remember our Lord asking me, he was like, Sean, I want your whole day. I want your whole day. So I like get back to my room and I shut the door and I say, Jesus, you're invited to my room with me right now. We're going to watch Netflix. <laughs> Because whatever we do, we do with the Lord, right? Whatever we do, we do with the Lord. So that means with the fact that God wants all your day, it means like he also wants your recreation. So you invite him into whatever you're doing. Jesus, you're welcome to go on social media with me right now or whatever. Jesus, is this good enough to Instagram? I don't know. We'll just like send it up there, right? So whatever we do, we do with the Lord. And then eventually like that hold on me started to weaken, 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 weaken. And I was able to completely surrender watching TV. Right? But in the beginning, like, eh, if we doubt God wants the good for us, we can't entrust ourselves to him. So we declare autonomy from him, and it ruptures our relationship as a son. So when love's corrupted, it's corrupted according to the order. The first thing that happens is we lose our identity as a son. Then this relationship between men and women gets ruptured. Because if God's not trustworthy, this woman's not trustworthy either, but maybe she can fill up the emptiness inside of me. Or she might say, if God's not trustworthy, he's not trustworthy either, but maybe he can fill up the emptiness inside of me. And that relationship becomes ruptured. And so when we, when we talk, usually when we talk about chastity in the church, and you probably all have heard like a million chastity talks ever since junior high, maybe. Um, and a lot of times we do these like men-women talks, and, and the women's talk sounds kind of like this. You are princesses, and Jesus loves you so much, and you need to guard your heart and be modest because boys, you know, boys are really visual, and they're kind of pigs. So you need to be modest to protect yourself from the boys. Let me go to the boys' talk, and it's like, you guys are a bunch of pigs. You better man up and guard those princesses. 
And what we're doing when we do that is we're creating this atmosphere of suspicion, right? And we're making it seem like it's the other person's fault when we fail, right? And, and so like any modesty talk, which includes men modesty, there's male modesty, is like you shouldn't like distract people from who you are. And it's the point of it is to guard your own dignity. But both men and women need to know that they are beloved children of God because chastity is not a problem here. It's a problem back here. It's a problem back here. The problem's here. It's not like over here. Like the problem's not yoga pants, by the way. Just want everybody to know that. I mean, I'm sp- nobody's laughing. I think it's because the president in the college is back there. <laughs> right? So... Because like I'm tired of guy, I'm tired of these kind of like people saying like if girls didn't wear yoga pants, no guy would ever like act out. It's ridiculous. It's not the girl's fault. So stop blaming yoga pants or anything else. Right? It's our own responsibility, and we act out because we don't know we belong to the Lord. That's why we act out. Right? That's why men act out because their identity's been ruptured back here. So then this corruption in love, like it bleeds into the next level. And what happens with the loss of parenthood is then that, like, what typically happens when there's a rupture in a marriage is each parent kind of isolates the child, and then they depend on their child to meet their emotional needs. So, like, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau from Scripture, right? Rebecca goes to Jacob and says, I want you to go to your father and dress up like your brother Esau and lie to your father, betray your father, so that he gives you the blessing, because I love you the best. So Jacob can either be faithful to his father and displease his mother, or he can please his mother by betraying his father. And now he's preoccupied with how do I be the parent of my parent? Like, how do I take care of my parents' needs? And that's the dynamic everyone who grows up in a divorce family has when they're going mom's house, dad's house, mom's house, dad's house, different rules, different house. But it's also the dynamic that happens in a lot of houses where like dad's a really hard worker and he's just gone all the time and mom's kind of emotionally fragile and she needs like her son to like feed her emotional needs. And when we become caretakers of our parent in that way, we lose our identity as sons. And when we lose our identity as sons, we start going awry. And these dynamics, they're things that also just like normal things that happen, you know, every day. So one day this happened to me in my life. I was uh, about four years old and I went to my dad and I said, Dad, can we go fishing? And he said, "Uh, when you're older. Okay, Dad promised we're going to go fishing when I'm older. So I got to be about seven, and I went to my dad, and I said, am I older? And he goes, uh, what? You said we'd go fishing when I'm older. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll go. Great. So I started imagining fishing. What does it look like? You get up on a Saturday. You go to a lake. You're out on a boat all day, just me and my dad. Maybe we'll catch fish. Dad came home from work, like, on a Thursday, said we're going fishing, get your stuff. So I get my stuff. I'm kind of confused. I get in the car. We drive toward the lake. And as we get towards the lake, we went down this long dirt road and we went to this fishing farm where they have these wells and they starve the fish at the bottom of the well. You drop in your fishing line, pull out a fish. We were home in 45 minutes. Fishing with my dad. What I learned? Dad doesn't really think I'm good enough. I remember the guy who worked there and he was like, the easy spots here, the medium spots out there, and the hard spots over there. And dad looks down, well, Sean, we better do the easy one. Mm, Dad doesn't think I'm good enough. Men need to test their limits, right? I also learned that when my dad says something, I have to lower my expectations about three levels. So we're going fishing means we're going well fishing. Vacation means we'll go to the lake for the day. One year, my sister thought she was going to get a computer for Christmas. I pulled her aside. You're probably getting a typewriter. So I was trying to protect her from disappointment. 
And my father was trying to protect me from disappointment because my father had been very disappointed in his life. Jesus loves you. Maybe he kind of tolerates me. And I started to develop this kind of anti-gospel that, you know, it's kind of a military way of speaking, but I call it the gospel of the suck. In the army, we always said embrace the suck, right, when things were really hard. So the gospel of the suck goes like this. God created the world, and life's supposed to suck. That's kind of it. If you persevere in the suck, he'll throw you a party when you're dead. <laughs> yes, I want to be a Christian, right? It's not the gospel. Our Lord came into darkness to bring light. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. He came so that we could have joy. Right? Joy is the fruit of the virtuous life. So if you don't have joy, you probably don't have virtue. And if you don't have joy, you probably don't have virtue. And, but that's the gospel that a lot of people carry. Right? It's the gospel a lot of people carry. A lot of people I know who struggle with sexual sins, they come to this weird conclusion that like this is my cross. Like, this is my cross. Like, our Lord doesn't give you grave sin as a cross. Right? He doesn't give you grave sin as a cross. And sometimes people have been told that by their priests. So if you've ever been told that by your priest, I apologize. And that's what happens when priests get frustrated because they don't know what to do. And they're telling, they're, they're like basically giving, trying to give tools and and, and you go to confession, and they're like, well, pray the rosary every day, and Mary's going to help. Well, I'm doing that already. Or make a holy hour every day. If you make a holy hour every day, you won't want to do that anymore. I'm doing that already. You know, that's the experience of every faithful person that I've ever worked with. And then the priest is like, oh, okay, that's all my tools. Uh, maybe this is just, maybe Jesus just wants you to struggle with this. No. That's not what he wants, but there are other ways, right? There are other ways. So, like, at the end of the talk, I'm going to show you some other ways so you have them in your tool belt, right? And so, like, how does all that get cleared up? Like, how does it get healed? It gets healed here. It gets healed according to the order. It gets healed according to the order. So everything gets healed here. Like, the cross is proof that God wants the good for you. That's what the crucifix is, right? The crucifix is proof that God wants the good for you. So we have to ask ourselves, when we look at a crucifix, what do we see? <clears throat> do we see the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Do we see the fact that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me? At my worst moment, our Lord's decision was to lay down his life and die so that I could live. Is that what we see every time we look at a crucifix? Or do we look at a crucifix and say, oh, I'm such a horrible person. Because every time I sin, it hurts Jesus. And I keep sinning. And I tell him I'm not going to stop sinning, so I stop hurting him. But I keep sinning, so I keep hurting him. And he must be frustrated with me because I'm frustrated with me, and I hope someday I stop sinning so I can stop hurting him. Then I can make up for hurting him, and then maybe he'll love me. Like, I used to think like that because I was catechized by Sister Margaret Mary of the disgruntled heart of Jesus. Right? <laughs> so it's kind of like when our teachers were frustrated and with our classroom, like they were bad classroom management, so they took us to the chapel, and they were like, every time you're bad in class, you drive it in their nail into Jesus' hands. Okay, is that true? Yes, it's true that... Our Lord took on himself the consequence of the sin of the whole world. So in Gethsemane, he becomes aware of the consequence of the sin of the whole world, and it's so heavy that he starts to sweat blood, which includes my sin. But he took on the consequence of every sin committed by every person from the beginning of time until the end of time, which means he took on himself the consequence of every sin that was ever committed against me. So when I felt like I don't belong in my own family, 
or I'm not worthy of real love, or I'm not worthy of real marriage, Jesus felt all those things because of the consequence of sin. If somebody was abused and they feel like I have no value except for my bodily value, I'm not worthy of real love or real relationship, Jesus felt all those things because of the consequence of sin. When I felt alone and isolated like nobody understands me or like no guys will ever want to be my friends, Jesus felt all those things because of the consequence of sin. And that means that he knows me more than anyone knows me and he loves me more than anyone loves me. And if that's true, then I can entrust myself to him. In the place that this rupture, this original identity rupture, is happening most frequently in our culture is, I believe, when a 10-year-old gets exposed to hardcore pornography on the iPhone that his mom gave him for his birthday. So this dad brought a 12-year-old in to see me once because he was struggling with masturbation and pornography. Now, the 12-year-old wanted help, so he went to his parents. So one super brave, awesome kid who went to his parents for help. Two amazing parents who were safe enough to receive that information from their son and not freak out. But they didn't really know what to do with him, so they brought him in to see me, and I started asking him some curious questions, like, when was the first time you ever saw pornography? And he said, fourth grade, the end of fourth grade. Do you remember where you were? Were you at home? Were you on the bus? Were you at a sleepover? No, I was at home. I was on the computer. This is in the public area. You know, a lot of parents think they're doing legit protection by just putting the computer in a public area. Did somebody tell you about it? Did somebody show you it? Well, something popped up and I clicked on it and then I got pictures and I clicked on those and I got videos. And one day I was looking for innocent videos. I was looking for Minecraft videos, but I got Minecraft pornography. Right? Because the pornography industry makes pornography that little kids will accidentally find. And they do that on purpose because the industry knows a 10-year-old first exposure equals a 25-year-old who pays them money. How did it make you feel? <clears throat> like my heart started racing and I felt excited and I felt disgusting at the same time and I wanted to look away but I couldn't look away and I knew it was wrong but I couldn't stop watching. That's all normal. That's like totally normal. How do you think Jesus felt? Oh, Father, I can't even think about that. Now, if Jesus was in the room with you that day, what would he do? He'd probably like stare, sit there and shake his head at me. What do you think he would say? Father, Jesus would say that's bad for you. It's a sin. I'm hurting people. I should know better. Father, it's just like I'm taking the nails and driving them into Jesus' hands. Obviously parroting whatever anybody's told him so far. And then I just said to him, you're a kid. Like You're just a kid. And Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for them if a millstone were put around their neck and they'd be thrown into the sea. And if our Lord was in the room with you that day, he'd be angry at pornography, but not at you. And he'd just kneel down in front of you and pull your head into his shoulder and say, I'm sorry this happened to you. This shouldn't have happened to you. I will always love you. I will never leave you. I'm sorry this happened to you. I will always love you. This shouldn't have happened to you. I will never leave you. I will always love you. Sorry, just over and over and over and over until the tears started welling up in his eyes <clears throat> because he was encountering this father who's rich in mercy. Like at 12, his God image got completely turned upside down and distorted because of something that happened to him. 
And everyone who struggles with pornography struggles with this original identity rupture, this original loss of masculinity, which is something that happened to them. Because there is nobody whose first exposure to pornography was their fault. Everybody, it was shown to them. They heard somebody talking about it. Their parents didn't do proper education, and so they didn't know any better. They found magazines in the woods, if they're older than me, right? because that's where pornography was, in the woods. Like, everybody has a woods story. <clears throat> you guys don't have a woods story because, like, the woods are in your pocket. <clears throat> right? And so it's pretty normal. Like, there's a small percentage of people older than me who found pornography in the woods. Right? The percentage of you who had the woods in your pocket is like this much. Right? So it's normal that people need help, need to walk that forward. And so I'm, I'm going to share with you some of those things that are available you know, for helping someone, right? which are also about restoring identity. Before I do that, I'm just going to share with you quickly like, how this got fixed in my own life or started to get fixed in my own life. So, so whenever I tell stories about that like this, it's the beginning of the beginning, right? So when I was in Rome, I had the I want to be like I want to be a priest moment, and then I got to my third year of grad school. So I'm three years into a two-year degree because I can't write. I've got writer's block because I'm writing on the interpretation of human suffering in Stanley Harvas and Emmanuel Munway, which is a really bad idea when you're experiencing suffering to write on the interpretation of suffering, right? And so, so I just can't get my paper done. And so now I've got to like fess up to my bishop because I'm at the end of the third year and I don't have my license done. And, uh, and I was really nervous about that. And I felt like I have this choice. I can either shove all these emotions down, shove this frustration down and throw myself into my work and become like a really good, solid, academic, curmudgeonly priest who doesn't really like people. Or I can take a risk to have joy. Right? I can take a risk that la joya is a real thing. But that risk means I have to fess up to my bishop and ask him to go to counseling, which is kind of scary because there's all these stories like, father's on sabbatical. Father's now a chaplain to two people in a hole in the ground in western Nebraska. <laughs> and I didn't feel like that's what God wanted for me. Um, but I know I don't want to be the curmudgeonly priest who doesn't really like people. And so, so I went to Bishop Bresquitz, and he was very kind, and we agreed that I would go to therapy that summer in Alma, Michigan. So, um, so a month before I went, I was praying over Mary and John at the foot of the cross, and Jesus looks down at the beloved disciple and says, Behold your mother. And I got stuck in that place, like, Behold your mother, freeze. And that went on for about two weeks. And then one day Jesus says, Behold your mother. And I had this feeling, this movement in my heart, this, like, warm feeling, this connected feeling. And it was tied to a memory of being about 12 years old. I was downstairs, and this lady came to my house to sell Mary Kay Cosmetics. And when I heard this lady's voice, this Mary Kay lady's voice, my heart started moving, and it was super confusing. So when she left, I went to my stepmom, and I said, am I supposed to know that lady? No. I feel like I'm supposed to know her. Uh, I don't know. Ask your father. Like, weird. Like, don't ask me that question. So I never asked that question, and I never let myself feel whatever it was that I was feeling. But when it came up in prayer, it was like 30 years worth of conversations came together like a mosaic being put together. And I realized my mother had cervical cancer while I was in utero. She carried me to term. I was born. And then she started treatment. So there's a 24-year-old woman who has two small boys and a baby, and she has cancer. And she needs help. So the pastor of our parish asked the family to help our family. And they would bring food and like, clean the kitchen and drive my mom to appointments and babysit. 
And when my mother went into the hospital to die, I went and lived with this other family for a while. And the mother of that family was the Mary Kay lady who came by when I was 12. And so when I realized that, I was like, okay, I definitely need therapy, and I need to find this lady. So I went on Facebook, because old people are on Facebook. <laughs> and I found one of her daughters. And I send this really shy message, like, I don't know if you remember me, but our parents used to be friends. And immediately I get this message back, how could we ever forget the little boy that God sent into our lives? And in five emails, I learned more about my mother than I had in 37 years of my life. I learned every day I would go lay in bed with her when she couldn't get out of bed anymore. I never knew that happened. I learned that every day she would call from the hospital and they put the, her, the phone to my ear so I could hear her voice. I never knew that happened. And when I went to counseling, it was about two hours away from where this woman and her husband live now, and I got to go see them, and I was super nervous, and I drive down, and, and I'd seen them before, but I didn't know the context of our, my relationship to them. And I knock on the door, and Fred answers the door, and he's like 70 at the time, and he was just like, oh, hey, Sean. I'm like, come on in, like, no big deal, I'm there. I go in, we're drinking Miller Lights or something. And then Mary comes in, and she's, like, telling stories about potty training me and who remembers me and all these kind of things. And then she says, hang on, I have something for you. And she leaves, and she comes back with this bag. And inside of this bag, she had all the birthday cards from my second birthday party. Like, proof you were loved on your birthday two weeks after your mom died. She had a poem the hospital chaplain wrote about my parents as my mother was dying. She had all the newspaper clippings from my high school career, like swim meet, student government, West Point. And she had this red piece of construction paper that says in crayon, to Mary Mom from Sean. And when you open it up, it just says, I love you in big letters. And she carried all that stuff around with her for 35 years. And seven times she moved her home just to give it to a 37-year-old priest who had no idea what it means to be loved unconditionally, who had no idea it was possible for somebody to hold me in their heart without wanting something from me. And it shifted everything. And I found myself entrusting myself to this person, which was a new experience for me, because I'm really bad at entrusting myself. Like, there's these, like, old ladies after Mass, they're always like, Father, I'll be your new mom. Like, get away from me, lady. <laughs> Mary Mom can, like, hold my face in her hands and say, you're in our family now, and there's nothing you can do about it, and we love you, and, like, God sent you into our lives, and we're here for good. And I'm just like, oh, that's so nice. And I'm able to rest there. And then I started to be able to rest there with our Lord. Because I had to realize our Lord did all those things. Right? Our Lord did all those things. Our Lord was looking down at me when I was born and saying, man, that kid's going to have problems. I need a pack rat lady who will save all this stuff. Right? Our Lord did all of that in his design. And he's done it for you too. Right? He's done it for you too. Like Our Lord always gives us what we need. Right? He always gives us what we need. And so, like, what do we need? Like, this slide is going to show you, like, all the interventions that are possible for somebody who struggles with pornography and masturbation. Okay, the wide end of this funnel is going to be, like, where we can take the most people, and it's the least invasive thing in your life. Like, it's going to cause the least amount of change in your daily life. This is going to be the most amount of change in your daily life, and we can handle the least amount of people. So there's a bunch of people in the church who are struggling with pornography and masturbation, and they're going to confession. And some people get healed in confession. I know people, like, they maybe got exposed to, like, catalogs when they were a kid. They masturbated a few times. They went to confession and then never did it again after they learned it was wrong. Once I met a guy at a conference, he was like, Father, I used to have that problem you talk about. How'd you quit? Confession, Father. Lots of confession. Like, 40 years of confession. Okay, we can compress that timeline. 
It doesn't have to take 40 years. Right? So a bunch of people are going to confession. The least invasive thing is putting filtering and accountability on their devices, right? Using Covenant Eyes or something else because we have to block access. Okay? If you do not block access, you always have pornography and you're living in an unnatural world where you have pornography and you don't even want pornography. And sometimes people say really ignorant things like, Father, I don't want to have to use Covenant Eyes. That's a good crutch. I just want to be virtuous. Okay, is it more virtuous to have pornography and not watch it or to not have pornography? Like, are you a better Christian if you subscribe to the Playboy channel and don't watch it? No, that's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous, and we all have the Playboy channel if we have a smartphone, right? And so putting blockers on there is just saying, no, I don't want to have this content, right? Everybody should say, no, I don't want to have this content. And, but let's say somebody's doing filtering and accountability, but they're like stealing their friend's phone or their mom's iPad or they're playing Beat the Filter all day, right? Do you know that game, Beat the Filter? It's like where you try to get around filters. I just want to make an app called Beat the Filter. And, and then you, like, if you get around the filter, you get a prize, but it's not pornography. <laughs> right? Because that's what people do. They play Beat the Filter. They're like, I wonder if the filters here work. I'm, I better check because I'm worried about Bob down the hall. Bob down the hall might have a problem, so I'm going to try to get around the filter to protect Bob. Right? It's ridiculous. Okay, so filtering it. Then the next thing we might do is go into a spiritual direction relationship. In that relationship, I'm going to find somebody I can trust. I'm going to tell them my whole story, my whole story. Somebody who can help bring Jesus into my life. Someone who can help me grow in my identity as a beloved son. That's the point of spiritual direction. And I'm going to acknowledge when I go to spiritual direction that I am a beginner, that I am a sinner who needs mercy. I'm not in the dark night of the soul. I'm a sinner who needs mercy. Most Catholic people that are faithful stay stuck because they think they're farther in the spiritual life than they are. If you're enslaved to sin, you're enslaved to sin. It doesn't matter like if you know the whole catechism and can quote it. If you're enslaved to sin, you're enslaved to sin. And if you're enslaved to sin, you're a beginner who needs to experience mercy. Right? Because what happens is we beat ourselves up. And I'll have these like guys will come by and they're doing like 45 novenas. Like, Father, uh, I'm just seeing if you know anything I don't know. I'm doing the 54-day rosary novena right now. And I'm, doing, I'm in the Angelic Warfare Society. I just finished Exodus 90. Um, and uh, I'm doing like the novena to St. Joseph. Do you have another novena or anything? Like, you don't need another novena. <laughs> you need to learn who you are. All those things are good. We're going to put them on a shelf. And I just want you to like pray into your relationship with our Lord. And we might do Lexio Divina. And I might say, pray over the paralytic who gets lowered in the synagogue. And somebody goes home and they come back the next week. Did you do your prayer? Yeah, I did it, Father. So tell me about it. Well, I can see myself and I can see Jesus and this big crowd of people between me and Jesus. And I, and I was looking around and I saw this sick guy laying on the ground. And I was like, I got to get this sick guy to Jesus because I got to help Jesus with his mission. So I picked up the mat and I started walking towards Jesus. I was like, wait, stop, stop, stop. Why aren't you the sick guy? I don't like being the guy on the mat. <laughs> Why'd you come see me again? Because I need healing. Okay, you're not going to get healing unless you're the guy on the mat. It's about vulnerability in our spiritual lives. We have to learn to be vulnerable in our spiritual life because you're learning to be a son again. That's what it is. It's about learning to be a son because that's where our identity is. So let's say you're going in spiritual direction, but that's, yeah, you're still really struggling. There might be time to go to a group. There's different kinds of groups, right? Like there's always, you know, Catholic men on campuses, like they put together these men's groups and their accountability groups. And they're going to be accountable. But there's nobody in that group that knows how to be chased. 
So you got like a bunch of dudes and they're being accountable, but the meeting turns into like, I fell, 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 I fell. And then it's like, well, Jesus loves you. <laughs> Does anybody know how to not fall? <laughs> like we keep falling. <laughs> right? And so, so you need to find a group where somebody knows the path. And so I really, really, really want to emphasize that um, Sexaholics Anonymous is a really good format for a group. Okay, and some people don't like 12 steps and they think they're against the church or something, which I'm going to talk about how ridiculous that is in my next slide. But like this is the Sexaholics Anonymous white book. If you use this book to run your group meeting, at least you have one person in the room who knows how to be sober. It's the book. Like the book knows how to be sober. So you always have one sober person in the room if you use literature. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and you can find 12 step groups online. You can find 12-step phone meetings. There's a website, it's saphonemeetings.org. There's phone meetings every hour on the hour throughout the day. All right, so then there might be individual therapy. I really recommend people find therapists who are trained in sexual addiction treatment. Therapists who are trained in sexual addiction treatment know how to help people. And they've seen hundreds of people with the same problem. Then they run therapy groups. There's IOPs. Intensives are weekends. They're kind of like a retreat, but it's like a therapy retreat for porn addicts. So we run one in Kansas City, it's Catholic, it runs Thursday, Friday, and, ha and Saturday. And it's like getting eight months of therapy in three days. And a lot of guys do really well on those. We've had a lot of seminarians and focus missionaries lately, actually, um, coming on those. And then there's inpatient treatment. So the point is that there's always something more. I used to think this was all there was. Right? And then there's all this other stuff that can help. So when, we, when I was talking about 12 steps, like one of the things I thought was interesting on my retreat last year is that I was praying through the Beatitudes. And in 12-step work, you have to do the steps in order. So you can't do like step five unless you've done one, two, and three. And I was like, what if you have to do the Beatitudes in order? And then I kind of put them side by side. So the first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means I'm completely dependent on our Lord, that I can't do anything by myself, that there's nothing I can do to fix myself, that our Lord has to do everything for me. I admit that I'm powerless over lust and my life has become unmanageable. Once I do that, then I have to grieve, like blessed are those who mourn, because I have to mourn the fact that I can't fix this by myself. I have to mourn the fact that it's going to take more than just going to confession. I have to mourn the fact that I'm not going to do this anymore for the rest of my life, and that's been the, my best friend for my whole life. For a lot of people, pornography is the one thing that helped them through all the hard times in their life. And there's grief in that. There's actually, like, you have to mourn. We always have to mourn what we say no to when we say yes to something else. Then, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So I'm going to make myself humble. I'm going to follow somebody. I'm going to come to a belief that a power greater than me can restore me to sanity. And I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to him as I understand him. Right? And so it's about surrendering. The whole spirituality is about surrendering. And that's the same thing St. Francis de Sales says about purity. It's about surrendering. It's about the genuine devotion, which means I can't do anything by myself. Once I surrender my life, then I start to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so I make a first searching and fearless moral inventory of my life. Then I admit to God, myself, and another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. I prepare myself to let God take them away, and then I ask him to do so, and then I receive mercy in that process. Then comes blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. So a lot of times we struggle with purity of heart, but the problem is we're not poor in spirit. 
and we don't know what it means to be dependent on another. Right? We don't know what it means to surrender our life to another, to find somebody who knows the path and follow them. You know, and so once then the kind of next things in the steps are to make a list of all the people I've harmed, make direct amends to them, I become a peacemaker. And then the rest is like living in discipleship. So the 12 steps are just a very intentional way of living the Beatitudes. They're just in a very intentional way of having a conversion. I'm going to go to this. Okay, so I'm supposed to let you ask questions. Does anybody want to ask questions? Or I can go through rituals and making sobriety plans. Does anybody have a burning desire to ask a question about a friend? <laughs> Nobody asks questions at the porn talk. Like, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I wish I met you when I was a little kid. Thanks. Before I got married, I had three kids. Thanks. And it was my wife that actually helped me through a lot of things mm-hmm. that we had to work out together. And Thank that's God. That's actually good for all of you guys to know. Thank God. Okay, I'm going to go through the ritual slide and the circle slide, and then I'll just hang out for a while afterwards. Okay, so, so let's say somebody's struggling and you're trying to help them because you have a friend. Um, the first thing we want to do is kind of outline our ritual. Like, what, how, what is the process we go through when we act out? So this is a typical ritual. There's a vulnerable time and a trigger. So a vulnerable time is like hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I got a D on a test yesterday. Um, father looked at me weird in the hallway. Um, I got three hours of sleep. Um, I have a vulnerable time from April until July because my father died on Father's Day. So that's a time of the year that I just feel a little bit off. And so if I'm in a vulnerable time, then the trigger's power is dependent on the vulnerable time. So a trigger can be sexual or non-sexual. Like a sexual trigger is like a beer commercial girl, right? So I watched this beer commercial girl, and then I'm all of a sudden like, wow, that's amazing because I didn't get enough sleep, and I'm really hungry. I had one meal yesterday. It was McDonald's. Right? So if I'm in a vulnerable time, the trigger has more power. If I'm well prayed and I'm connecting with my friends and I'm in community, that trigger is not going to have that much power. That's why some people can get away with watching a rated R movie one day, and then the next day they can't. Then there's an emotional response to the trigger. Emotions start coming. Then there's a thought. The thought's like, I'm thinking about looking at pornography. Uh, and if I stay in that thought, that's when this chemical dump happens and there's dopamine gets released and my blood flows to the back of my brain and my frontal cortex shuts down. And then I have a second thought. And the second thought's always permission giving. So the second thought is like, I wonder if pornography still exists. I better check. I wonder if that one porn star I used to follow is still in the industry, bless her heart. I'm really worried about her, so I'm going to check. Right? There's all kinds of weird things that go on to give permission. And then I, so then I act out, and then there's remorse. Right? So, so one thing I want to point out is that the first thought is not, you haven't sinned yet. Because sometimes people think, like, the thoughts, you're not responsible for, like, memories and, like, random thoughts. So, like, if you're out jogging, and the evil yoga pants girl jogs by you. So then your brain starts going, wow, she's really beautiful. I wonder if she would think I'm beautiful. What if I jogged up next to her and I said hi? And then we started talking and I said something really clever. And then we stopped for coffee afterwards. And then she invited me up to her room. And then she invited me to shout. Wait, what the hell am I thinking? Have I committed a sin yet? No. Like, that's the moment of consent. What the hell am I thinking? 
Okay, all the rest of that stuff is just memories and it's just junk that goes on in my head. When I become aware of what's going on in my head, that's the moment of consent. Now I can either surrender that or I keep going down the fantasy train. Okay, what happens to a lot of guys is when they get to the moment of what the hell am I thinking, then they start going, I'm such a horrible Christian. If I was a good Christian, I wouldn't even think these thoughts and I would never like even have this thing and I can't do it right and I'm no good and I might as well just keep going because I've already sinned. Okay, which is a lie that keeps you stuck. Okay, so the moment of consent is the battleground. What does a typical ritual look like for a young person today? Uh, feeling vulnerable and alone with the internet. Alone with the internet's a trigger. So when I'm feeling lonely and I'm alone with the internet, what do I do? I check like Facebook, social media, email. I go to Facebook and I look at that and I see all my friends went out last week and they didn't invite me and that one like girl I had a crush on in eighth grade is now dating like some guy who's a total dork and if I had gone to Virginia Tech, she'd be dating me. And, uh, and I got, and like nobody responded to anything I said on social media and now I'm looking at LifeSite News and I don't even know if the church is the church anymore, right? Because like, like these are the things we do, right? And you get rejected like 30 times in three minutes. Okay? You get rejected 30 times in three minutes when you check Facebook, social media, and email. So then I feel even more alone, so I recheck social media, and now there's a trigger. So that one girl I had a crush on back in eighth grade went to the beach with her friends, and she has really cute pictures up there, and she has really cute friends. So I'm going to look at her profile and look at her pictures, and then she has a cute cousin, so I'm going to her profile and looking at her pictures. Now I'm looking at a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend's pictures on social media, and anticipatory dopamine starts kicking in. And so now I kind of want to see something more, but I don't want to look at porn because that would be really bad. And so I'm going to just go to YouTube and watch the 15 most inappropriate commercials of 2016. And I tell myself I'm not looking at porn. And then there's this switch that goes off. So it's like, I'm not looking at porn. I'm not looking at porn. I'm not sinning. 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 I'm not. Actually, I started sinning like five minutes ago. So I might as well be looking at porn. Then if somebody's a faithful person, they ask this question. Can I get to confession? Yeah, I can rearrange my schedule and make sure that I get to confession in the morning. I'll have to get up a little early, but I can go to confession. So when I go to daily mass, I can go to communion. And then nobody will know that I didn't go to communion. So now I'm only going to communion to cover up the fact that I looked at pornography. So if I can get all that worked out, I act out. Then I feel worthless then there's more acting out because I'm going to get it all out of my system before the next confession. Lots of shameful negative self-talk. Then I go to sacramental reconciliation. I resolve to never act out again until I'm feeling vulnerable. Right? That's a typical ritual for somebody. I just want to point out that when somebody's a faithful person, can I get to confession and go into confession have become part of the ritual. I'm not saying they're like evil people who are abusing the sacrament of reconciliation because I don't think we're doing it on purpose. But it's become part of the ritual. Sometimes people will say, Father, I don't go to confession right away because if it go right away, I just am more tempted to act out right away. That just means you weren't done yet. And you need help. Like you need to get help outside of that. Or I once had somebody say, Father, I only feel loved when I go to confession after I act out. My spiritual director had a directee once and they had an attachment to being like the prodigal son because they had this amazing prodigal son moment. But they never let themselves like be okay being okay. 
And sometimes people act out when things are going good and they don't understand that. I'm like, things are going good. Why am I acting out? Like I act out when I'm, things are going bad. I act out when things are going good. It's like Irish people. They drink when it's raining and they drink when it's sunny. <laughs> Same thing. So how do we get the ritual, this ritual, this big R ritual out of the little R ritual? Like first and foremost, like if you make a phone call way back here, your whole life is better. Right? Because phones do this really cool thing. Like phones make phone calls. It's really cool. It's amazing. You can hear somebody's voice on it. It's amazing, right? And, and that's the hardest thing for young people to do, and it's the hardest thing for addicts to do, is to make phone calls and just listen to somebody else's voice, right? So successful people, they call three people a day, and they check in about lust temptations, fears, and resentments. Um, so then I can, when I know my ritual, I can make a plan. And so to make a plan, if you want to be accountable to somebody, make a plan and be accountable about the plan. So the center of the plan, the center circle of the plan, this is where I put all my like really bad behaviors that I really want to stop, like my grave sins. So I have like pornography, masturbation, include cruising on social media. People might have strip clubs or Tinder or something like that. Then the yellow circle is like the danger zone. So these are things I have to have in place or I'm going to do the middle. Okay, so these are just boundaries I need to have in place or else I'm going to end up in the center. So it's like near occasions of sin. So I have social media for more than 20 minutes because I might zone out after 20 minutes. Um, accidental exposures without checking them in. So if I watch something on Netflix, like I like the Marco Polo miniseries in the 80s, and then I'm like, oh, there's a Marco Polo series on Netflix, but there's a lot of sex in that, and I didn't know there was sex in that. So now I've got sex in my head after watching that, and I didn't know it was going to be in there. i got to call my friend and say, dude, I just had an accidental exposure. I need to talk about it because otherwise I'm going to be in preoccupation, and if I keep secrets, uh, I'm going to act out. Phone in bedroom, so some people just can't leave their phone in their bedroom anymore. Negative contact with family members without checking it in. Um, so like I have one of those moms that like, like I might feel lonely and call my mom and she spends the first 30 minutes yelling at me for never calling. Am I the only one in the room? I don't know. So, <clears throat> so like sometimes on color ID, like her face, her number shows up and it's like <sighs> all my energy's out of my body. Um, so I had to start making a mom sandwich. Okay, mom sandwich means I call a friend who builds me up, and then I call my mom and she drags like all my energy's gone. <laughs> and then I call my friend back who builds me up again. It's a good technique, right? It might be your parents, it might be somebody else. Nobody laughs at my parent jokes. You gotta be like 30 to laugh at those jokes, okay. Um, celebrity photos on social media. So if you're looking at the 10 childhood stars you never knew were hot now, probably gonna end up in the center. Right? And so then the green zone is going to be like positive things I need to do to be a good human. So daily mass, counseling, spiritual direction, three phone calls, right? Now say three phone calls a day is what's really healthy for people if they're really struggling. Weekly confession. So if the confessionals become part of somebody's ritual, I say like go to confession every week. Pick a time and go every week. What if they're scrupulous? If they're scrupulous, they might have to get diagnosed with OCD or something like that. Like that's another thing. But go to confession every week. Pick a specific time. And go to confession even when you don't commit a sexual sin. I have this guy, he's been sober for two years now. Father, I've, I haven't been in confession like nine months. Why not? What do you even confess anymore when you don't do that? It's like nine other commandments. <laughs> right? Like there's other stuff. Right? So weekly confession, covenantized support groups. You might have like play golf with my friends. You might have play Catan with my friends. You might have like whatever you do. Right? That's fun. Um, and then when you go meet with your person, you're checking in, you check in about your plan. Father, I fell. Did you follow your plan? 
Actually, I didn't make any phone calls. Then I had an accidental exposure. I didn't call anybody because I was shamed because I didn't call anybody. And then I ended up acting out. Okay, you need to follow your plan. Did you follow your plan? By the way, I followed my plan, but this one girl that I like made out with at a party in high school, like friended me on social media. And then I started thinking about her a lot. And then I ended up acting out. Okay, so you need to add contact with ex-girlfriend to your plan. And you just keep modifying your plan until you're living in better freedom, right? It's a really pretty a simple thing, but like it might be with your spiritual director or like a friend or a mentor or something like that. And so, so those are just a few tools to like help you along the way, okay? Any questions on that? I have one more really good story I want to tell you. Can I tell one more story? Is that a yes, or you're giving me like the still face to face? Okay. So the most important thing you do is work on your own conversion. <clears throat> the most important thing you do. When I talk to priests, I always end with the most important thing you do to help your people is to work on your own conversion, and your own conversion has to happen first. And um, and Pope Francis, when he was on Divine Mercy Sunday, he was preaching on Thomas. And he said, don't be ashamed of the wounds in the body of Christ. And he's talking about Thomas and Thomas like putting his finger in the wound and coming to faith. And, um, and I was praying about this and I was like, what did Thomas doubt? Like, did Thomas doubt the resurrection or did Thomas doubt that Jesus was resurrected with his wound? Because he doesn't say, unless I pat him on the back, I won't believe you. He says, unless I put my finger in the wound and Jesus showed them his wounds and said, peace be with you. And I think he doubted that he was resurrected with his wounds because I want Jesus to be resurrected without his wounds. Because that seems ridiculous. Like, it seems like, why would there still be evidence of the most shameful, painful thing in his life after the resurrection? But he says, don't be ashamed of the wounds in the body of Christ because it's there that people come to faith. And the place that that became most apparent to me was um, in 2016, I was asked to speak at the Set Free Summit. It was like this gathering for evangelical Protestant pastors. So it was like 900 evangelical Protestant pastors and me. <laughs> and two other priests were there because they were my friends. And I don't know what it's like to be a minority, but I felt like a minority. Everybody's looking at me funny because I got a collar on and a speaker name tag. And, um, and mind you, this is 18 years after, like in 1998, I was in the army, my roommate had a pornography VHS tape that I watched a ton of times. All those images in my head. 18 years later, I'm speaking at this evangelical Protestant conference. And I'm like scanning the room looking for anybody who looked like they might be familiar and pop, this guy's face jumps out of the crowd who was in the VHS tape that my roommate owned back in 1998. And I was like, ah, what's he doing here? Is he like a terrorist? <laughs> Maybe he just looks like him. So the next day, I'm talking to a friend of mine, and uh, this, I said, hey, who were you talking to over there? Who's that guy? And he said, oh, I used to be an actor in the pornography industry, but now he's here with his pastor, and he's trying to figure out how to be a blessing. Uh, I thought so. And then Jesus starts in on me, Sean, I want you to talk to that guy. Yeah, right, Jesus. So the next day, I give my talk, and it went really well. It was like a 30-minute version of Theology of the Body, and then I got like lines of Southern Baptists like, coming to ask my forgiveness right, <clears throat> for judging me. It's an amazing thing. It's just an amazing thing, like, because they don't have confession. So, like, they did not want me to talk at that conference. I gave a good talk. Then they all came up and apologized. And there was seriously a line. Father, I just told my friends I would talk to you because I wanted to hate you when I saw you in the program. And you gave the bus talk at this whole thing. And then you need to ask your forgiveness. 
Like, just think about that. Like, like cause I know you never judge each other at this college. <laughs> like, would you ever, would you ever like go up to that guy and say, "Hey, man, I just need to ask your forgiveness." What would it be like if you did? Sometimes we just like to do things, you know. I'm just going to tell the priest. Anyway, so, so I'm feeling pretty good. I'm walking around, and the guy's outside, and it's just me and him. And I went like, Room. and our Lord went, missed opportunity. So the last day of the conference, I went outside to smoke cigarettes because for Pope Francis says, the smell like your sheep. <laughs> and uh, so I go outside to smoke, and this guy comes out to smoke. And it's just me and him. Okay, Jesus, how's it going? Oh, it's been great. It's been great. How about you? Oh, it's good. I'm a Catholic priest. And I'm trying to figure out how to talk about these things more in the open. And, you know, usually we just talk about them in confession. Oh, yeah, I know. I used to be Catholic. Hmm. Let me talk a little bit more. And he looks at me kind of with this, kind of out of the corner of his eye. And he's like, my story is different than everybody else's story here. I was like, oh, he's going to tell me. I was an actor in the pornography industry for 25 years. 25 years. And I don't know where to go from there, so I just asked him some curious questions like, how'd you get out? Was it a group or an organization or a pastor? Or... No, it wasn't any of that. I was just driving off set one day and I collapsed in my car on the side of the road saying, Jesus, I just can't do this anymore. <laughs> I know a lot of people who shut their computers down saying, Jesus, I just can't do this anymore. He said, I was a Christian before I made pornography, and I used to drive in to make pornography, sometimes saying, Jesus, forgive me for what I'm about to do. <laughs> I know a lot of people who pray that prayer when they start their computers. And then he said, I kind of want to get up in front of everybody and just say I'm sorry. And when he said I'm sorry, it like struck my heart. It was like 22-year-old me hearing it, as if he was saying, I'm sorry that you got exposed to me. And it mattered to me. And it like mattered to me in a really profound way. Because I've given this talk now to thousands of people. I've said I'm sorry that happened to you to thousands of people. The first person who ever said to me I'm sorry that happened to you was this ex-porn star in Greensboro in 2016. And it mattered. And so I said, you know, if you give talk sometime, you should say that. Because I knew exactly who you were as soon as I saw you. There's a part of me that was ashamed to come up and talk to you. But when you said, I'm sorry, it really mattered to me. And I forgive you. And then he started to like cry a little bit. Oh, Father. Father, thank you so much. Fa Father, thank you for saying that. Fa Father, give me a hug. Right? And he gives me a hug. And he kind of puts his hands on my shoulders like, I love you. And he takes off. And that was by far the most profound year of mercy moment that I ever could have imagined would happen. It was right in the middle of the year of mercy. And all the things our Lord had to do in order to make that moment happen. And it never would have happened if I was ashamed of my own wounds. It never would have happened if I hadn't done my own work. It never would have happened if I didn't make my own conversion my priority. And sometimes we have big dreams about what we're going to do in the church and what we're going to do in the world and how we're going to change the world and... The biggest way we do that is our own conversion first. Because when we learn what it is to surrender our life to our Lord, when your identity rests in him because he is the one you admire that's chosen you, then he gets to do these amazing things with you. 
And he'll do things that are more amazing than you can dream up yourself. But those things cannot be done if you haven't surrendered your life. And they cannot be done unless you've really let him heal everything that needs to be healed. And this is like the perfect time for you to just say, I'm going to reboot my own conversion process and kind of start building my identity in Christ from the beginning, like in complete honesty and transparency with him. You know, and then you can see what he does. Right? And what he does will be amazing. Like, like, I called Covenant Eyes and tried to get a deal, and then like I'm you know, talking to this ex-porn star at this conference. And now I'm doing this, and I've helped like 40 priests get into recovery this year. And it's just what Jesus is doing. Right? It's just what our Lord's doing. It's not what I want to do. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we ask your blessing upon all of these, your sons. We ask you to bring healing to any memories, any circumstances, any ruptures in relationship that might have come to mind during this talk this evening. Give them the courage to surrender their hearts completely to you, to entrust everything to you. For anybody who's struggling, we pray that they'll have the courage to take the steps they need to take in order to be free, in order to truly know the joy that comes only from belonging to you. Help us to be more disposed to the mission that you have in mind for us, that we may truly be a light that shines in the darkness of our culture, because you have first come to shine within our own hearts. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks. It's been a great joy being with you tonight.